I'm really glad to uh, be able to kick off. I get to uh, kind of do the first couple of weeks here uh, at the semester, so the staff was nice and uh, are letting me do that, so that's fun. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to this semester. I think this semester is going to be good. In fact, I was just thinking about that as we were going through announcements. The men's advance. This is going to be good. Men do not retreat. What do they do? Advance. That's right. That's why we have advances. So, uh, so we will have a men's advance. That will be fun. It'll be a good time. Um, this past uh, break, hopefully you had a refreshing time. We had a, a time last week we got to get away and get some time with the uh, family and uh, had all the kids and uh, the grandkids and a plethora of folks there. It was a lot of fun. And while I was, uh, while I was there, one of the things I was doing was I was reading through um, a biography of a guy named Adniron Judson. It's a, a book called To the Golden Shore. And um, it's really good. Have anybody ever read about Adnan Judson? Anybody ever done that? So one or two? Okay, great. Well, I'd encourage you. If you've never read about this guy, you ought to. My gosh, you know, it'll, your socks will roll up and down. You'll get all inspired. And so, I mean, it was actually good. But I was reading this, and, um, you know, he had grown up in this Christian family. And he, um, he had begun to uh, take steps and, and kind of adopt a, a lifestyle of faith himself at one point. And then he went off to college like many of you. And when he got off to college, one of the things he found was he, he got in there and a lot of his friends that he began to find, they kind of thought, Christian, really? You believe that? He was like, yeah. And they were like, oh man, how uninformed, how, uh, how just, you know, how, how limiting. And especially one of his classmates that was like a year older than him, this guy named Jacob Eames, he was there and he met him and Eames was like, no, 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 no. You don't need God. You just need to just run your own life. You just do what you think's best and stuff. And so Judson was like, and honestly, he wasn't really sure in his faith much anyway. He was kind of, kind of vacillating on some things. So he decided, well, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. So he just began to follow after these guys. I mean, if they went off, you know, doing whatever, he went off, did the same thing. And before long, as he began to live, he began to live more and more of his life where, you know, it's kind of like uh, Dorothy mentioned earlier when she said it was kind of a divided life. He began to do that. But, but more and more, the thought of God and, you know, actually considering God and things just became less and less. And then he had to go home for break. And he thought, oh, what am I going to do now? I've got to figure out a way to cover this all up. And so he was sitting there, he was trying to hide things from his folks, you know, and they would say something about, you know, do you want to do this? No, nah, maybe not today. You know, I'm not feeling good today, you know. And he was just trying to figure out ways to kind of dance around. And he started back for school, and he had a couple days' journey to get back to school. So he spent one night at his uncle's house, and then he was coming on back, and he stopped in this one town and uh, tried to get a room at the inn that was there. And the guy said, uh, well, I can give you a room, but there's... There's only one problem. He said, there's a guy in the room next to you, and um, honestly, he's not doing well. In fact, he may not make it. And so, you know, just so you know that, so you're aware of it, because he kind of makes a lot of noise. And so he's like, oh. Well, as he goes up, he's sitting there, and sure enough, through the night, Ed and Iron could hear him, and he could hear his moaning and his just his outcries, and he was like, oh. And he began to think about his own life. And he began to think about this guy's life. And he began to think, you know, I wonder what's going to go on with that guy. That guy sounds miserable. And he thought, you know, I wonder 
if that guy's going to be okay. And in fact, he, he really found himself troubled through the night, not only for this guy, but for himself, because for him, he saw death not as an entrance into another life, but as an exit out of this life. And he was like, oh, man, I don't know. I just don't know. But finally, he went off to sleep and uh, slept through the night, got up the next morning, was downstairs and was finishing up his bill with the innkeeper. And he said, hey, by the way, the guy uh, next door, any word on him? He said, uh, oh, he died. He goes, oh, man. He goes, I'm really sorry to hear that. He goes, did anybody know him? I mean, does, do we know anything about him? He goes, he was a university student. His name was Jacob Eames. He said, it's all we know. And all of a sudden, you know, Adnarn's like, oh, my gosh. So he kind of shell-shocked, goes back to campus, and decides, you know what? Um, his philosophy of life sure didn't seem to work out in the end. Maybe I ought to do some more checking. And he began to really dig into his faith. He began to really look at what, is, what does the Bible say? He began to look at what are, what are the uh, things that are true about my faith right here. And as he began to look at it, he began to find more and more and more of a firm foundation. And he really committed the rest of his life. He went over and uh, spent the rest of his life introducing the gospel to the people of Burma and helping them to have a Bible in their own language. So if you've never read about Adoniram, I would, uh, I would encourage you to do that. He's, a, he's an interesting guy. And, man, I mean, my life was really uh, enriched and really challenged as I read more about him. But tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to start a study tonight. Uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to look at, um, for those of you that don't know, uh, let me just kind of tell you a little bit. Uh, in fact, if I haven't met you, my name's Neil, by the way. So uh, I'm on staff here. And so, um, you know, one of the um, things that we try to do is we'll take a topic and we'll look at it for several weeks and try to find out, okay, what does that mean for us? How do we put that into practice in our own lives? And how do we live that out? And then we'll move on. We'll look at another topic and do that. And so the topic we're going to look at for the next three weeks is the topic of faith. Um, if you're a person of faith, if you're a Christian, um, which, you know, many of you are, then what you've, you've probably, like Judson found when you got to campus, you may have felt a little marginalized in uh, some different settings on campus, among some different groups, in some different classes. You know, you may have felt like, you know, they viewed you as simple or uninformed, or worse yet, they viewed you as bigoted and narrow-minded and you know, nobody likes to be thought of that way, you know, but I mean, it kind of worried you. And even to the point where you may have begun to ask yourself, is there really um, a basis for our faith? Is there really, I mean, is there something that's foundational here? I mean, am I just giving my life to something that may or may not be true? And so, you know, we want to look at that for the next three weeks. In fact, we're going to look at three subjects. We're going to look at tonight at the foundation of our faith. Uh, next week, we're going to look at, at the key to our faith. And the third week, we're going to look at the proof of our faith and kind of see how those things live their way out. But before we do, um, before we get started tonight, can we take a minute? Let's pray. And uh, let's just ask God to speak to us. Father, what a, uh, what a great privilege we have 
to be right here at USC to, uh, to have the lives that you've given us, the opportunities that you've given us. Um, we, are, we, are, uh, we are richly blessed by you. Father, I, I really pray that um, tonight you would take and uh, choose to speak um, not only uh, to me, but through me uh, here to the folks. I pray that, uh, Father, you would make words clear that uh, you would help to personalize those for each person. Help them to really understand uh, the things they need to hear out of uh, tonight. And I really pray that, um, Father, we would have a much, much clearer understanding of uh, the foundation of our faith as we look at that tonight. I pray that you would kind of uh, pull away any uh, shades that would kind of keep us from seeing things clearly. I pray that you would uh, just remove the blinders. Help us to really see it and help us know what to do with it as a result. And we pray those things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, faith, faith is a very important thing. In fact, um, it's the thing that's going to impact your relationship with God more than any other area that you're going to find in your life. In Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So, you know, sometimes you may look at that. You may think to yourself, well, what, why do I need faith? I mean, why? I mean, you know, like if you go hang out with one another, you don't say, you know, someone says, do you want to hang out? You don't say, well, if you have enough faith. You know, someone kind of looks at you like, what? What would I need that for hanging out with you? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? But God, I mean, God says without faith, it's impossible to please him. Why, why do we need faith? as we relate to God. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, God is invisible. And that is, in other words, you can't see him. And so consequently, what you have to do is you have to trust what you know about him. You have to trust what is known, what you learn about him. There has to be a level of trust there. That's why he says, you have to believe that he is. That's kind of the beginning point right there. You know, you have to begin to have faith in order to begin a relationship with him. The second one is you, you really can't see the future. And you know what? He can, but you can't. And so consequently, boy, the future can look really ominous sometimes. It look kind of scary. You don't know what it holds. In fact, you know, your life could fall apart tomorrow or it could take off. I mean, you have no idea what it holds. But since he does, what you have to do is you have to learn to trust him. You have to learn to kind of lean in. You have to learn to have faith in what he says, have faith in how he says you should approach things in order for you to really make progress, in order for you to really move forward. So as we look at that, what, how would, you know, as we think about faith, what is faith? If you're thinking, well, I need to have it. And if I'm going to relate to God, I have to have it. So what is it? Well, the author of Hebrews talks about that too. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In fact, that little word um, assurance, it's a word, another word for that would be the substance. It's the substance of things hoped for. So it, faith is substantive. You know, it's the substance of things hoped for, 
the conviction, or another word, another way you could translate that word right there from the original language is the evidence, the evidence of things not seen. Now, most Christ followers that I know, they want to live lives of faith. I mean, most of them, as I talk to them, you know, I ask them about something like that. They're like, oh, yeah. I mean, I want to live a life of faith. In fact, many times we feel guilty because we feel like we don't have enough faith. Or we ever feel like, have you ever felt this way? Like, I need to really work on my faith. You know, I really got to work it up. You know, kind of like, I believe, I believe, I believe. You know, you, something like that. You know, you think, oh, I've got to do this. I've got to get this thing worked up because I need more faith. You know, a lot of times we think our faith is just based on an idea we have. Kind of like, you know, um, you know, like I believe in purple monkeys or something. You know, and if I really believe in that, it's going to, you know, no, 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 no. The object of your faith makes all the difference in the world. It's not a matter of how much you can work up or what needs to go on there. It's the object of your faith that you need to begin to think about. So Hebrews says here, it is the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it's this, it is this um, evidence of things that you don't really see now, but there's strong evidence that those exist. So how do you, how do you begin to do that? Well, let me, let me illustrate it kind of like this. Let's say... Um, uh, let me think of an example. All right, let's take Diego. Now, you take Diego. No, someone will take Diego. All right, we'll take Diego. Uh, you take Diego. Let's say, you know, Diego gets an email this week. And the email says, you know, official business. And he thinks, yeah, right. Uh, you know, so he opens it up and it says, Dear Mr. Cervantes, we are uh, very sorry to inform you. Uh, that your uncle Mortimer Cervantes has died. And, uh, you know, um, he, he wanted to let you know, though, that in his will, he has specifically left some things to you. And so uh, there has been $5 million uh, deposited into your account. We have a, a yacht that has been docked at Newport Harbor in your name. And we have a castle on the Danube River in Germany where Uncle Mortimer lived out the last days of his life. And he wants you to do this. And, you know, Diego reads this thing and he thinks, Luke, uh-huh, okay, it's Luke. I know Luke sent that, <laughs> you know. He goes, because who else would have hacked my email and sent me something like this? You know, I mean, yeah, it had to be Luke. You know, I mean, the guy is just, you know. And, and so he's trying to think, how can I get even with him? But, you know, he doesn't have time to think of that because he's thought of Maddie. And so he's thought, you know, uh, he's thought, you know, I think what I'll do is maybe I'll go and I'll get some yogurt with Maddie. And and so, you know, uh, but he realizes that as he checks his pocket, you know, he has three dollars in his pocket. And so he thinks, uh, obviously, that's not going to be cool when he shows up and says, hey, you want to go have these? And so uh, so he thinks, you know what I'll do? What I'll do is, see, I will, I will go by and take some money out of my bank account. So he gets up there, sticks in the ATM card, you know, pulls it out, comes out, you know, he gets his $20, and he just kind of looks down at the bank statement, and it says, remaining balance, $5,002.36. And he thinks, no. I didn't know I had 36 cents. Uh, and so he kind of looks there and he kind of looks and he goes back and he checks that thing again. And sure enough, comes back five million, two dollars, 36 cents. And he goes, huh. So, you know, he thinks, 
oh, well. So he kind of goes on his way, and he goes, because after all, Maddie's waiting. So he goes over there, and so, you know, they go get yogurt, and they're getting some yogurt and stuff, and then they're there, and he goes, you know, the strangest thing happened to me this morning. And she says, what's that? He goes, well, I got this email, you know, and uh, she's talking to him for a minute. She said, really? He said, yeah, a stranger thing happened. You know, I went by my bank. He kind of tells her about this. She said, do you think we ought to call Newport Beach and check on the yacht? And he's like, yeah, right. She goes, I mean, he goes, I mean, it wouldn't hurt, you know. So, uh, so he calls down to Newport and he says, hey, you wouldn't happen to have any new yachts that have been brought in there recently. Or anything. Oh, they, we, no, we've got this little 40-foot one that's uh, the SS Mortimer. Uh, it was brought in this week. He goes, really? Yeah, there's a, there's a name on it here. It's uh, for a uh, Diego Cervantes. And they, oh, my gosh. Now, he comes back to Bonsalo and he tells the guys, hey, guys. I thought this summer, after mission trips are over, that um, we would all go to my castle in Germany. Now, let me ask you a question. Has, has he seen a castle in Germany? No. Why in the world does he think he has a castle in Germany? Everything else kind of matched up, didn't it? Yeah. Now, as you look at that, is the email the foundation of his faith? No, 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 no. No, the email is just talking to him about what is the foundation of his faith. You know what? The $5 million in his bank account and the yacht down in Newport, now that's the foundation of his faith. That's why he's planning on the castle. You know, you look at that, it were things that were true that happened in time and space. And sometimes as we think about our faith, we think, man, it would be so good to have like an event, something that was true, something that happened in time and space, something that we could look at that we could say, see, this is real. And if we could have something like that, then, oh, then I would be such a better Christian. I mean, then I would get serious. I mean, if we had something like that, I mean, I might shift over to like 60-40 instead of, you know, that 50-50 life. You know, I mean, I might actually make some progress on this thing. You know, I mean, if I really had evidence. And so you begin to look at that. Well, there is. So what is the foundation of the faith of Christians? What is the foundation of our faith? Paul brings that up in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you look, if you don't have your Bibles with you, you can look right here at the screen. And we'll read here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in chapter 1. Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. That's key. We'll come back to that which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And then he says this in verse 12. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. Did you see what he said there in verse 14? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, the things we're telling you, they're just not true. You don't want to bank on that. But he says, more importantly, your faith also is in vain. So you begin to look. Paul says, you know what the foundation of your faith is? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of your faith. Happened in time, happened in space, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you may look at that, you may think, why is, why is the resurrection such a big deal? Well, he tells you about that in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. So you begin to look at that, you think, well, well why is that? Well, for one, let's say, you know, that some people say, well, you know, there's one theory that went around in the first century. Some people said, well, maybe he never really died. I mean, you know, they buried him. He was wrapped in all of that, you know, cloth and spices and everything else in a damp tomb. But maybe he just kind of woke up, jumped over to the side, whipped the rock out of the way and took off. Maybe he never died. Well, he says, you know what, if that's true, if he never died, then the penalty for your sins was never paid. So you're hopeless. He said, on the other hand, if he did die and was never raised from the grave, then your faith is worthless. You're praying to a dead God. It doesn't matter. So he says, the resurrection is huge. It is huge. So why can you have complete confidence in the resurrection? That's what I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at tonight. Why can you have complete confidence in the resurrection? One of the very first reasons is the historical accounts. The historical accounts. If you look right there in Paul's writing, when Paul's writing this, um, this uh, letter to these folks that are in Corinth, he writes this, and in, verse, uh, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and also which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. When Paul's writing this, he says, this is the word I preached to you. Now, when he wrote this letter, all scholars, Christians, non-Christians, nominally Christians, those who don't even know how to spell Christian, all of them agree that, you know what, this letter was written between 55 and 57 A.D. So they all agree on that. So now Jesus died at like 33 A.D. So the space between when he died and when this letter was written was like less, less than 25 years. Some even think less than 20. So you begin to look, you think, wow, that's really close. Yeah, because sometimes they say, well, you know how things go over time. Things begin to get blown out of proportion. People become legends. Some of you know how that is. You know, some of you used to average five points on a basketball team in sixth grade. And uh, over time, you've averaged 25 points on a high school team and made Allstate. 
you're just not sure what state it was, you know, probably a state of confusion. But, you know, you were there, and so, you know, you were there. And, you know, things get blown out of time, and sometimes people have said that about this. They've said, well, maybe this thing was just exaggerated. No, no. This was way too close for things to have been exaggerated over time. But he says in those two verses right there, he says, this is what I told you when I was there. Now, he'd been there in 52 A.D., which means it was even closer. And he says this in, in the next uh, passage right here in verses 3 and 4. He says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. In other words, he had learned this stuff back before he had ever passed it on to them. He had, been, he had uh, learned the same thing. You think, well, when did he learn that? Well, most scholars, when they look at that, they, they refer to the passage in Galatians 1, 18 and 19, where Paul says, after he had come to faith, he said for a little while, for like two weeks, he went up and he spent time with Peter and he spent time with James in Jerusalem. And it's there within that context, which most people factor that time, most scholars factor that time to be like 35, 35 AD. So within a couple of years... After the resurrection, Paul's back there. And so you think, wow. So this isn't like somebody writing like, you know, back in the day. No, no, no. This is somebody writing like about something that happened a couple of years ago. And so you're like, wow. But then there's even more because those verses right there in three through five, this was actually a little... um, what is called a creed, it, it was an actual, if you look at it in the original language, it actually kind of uh, goes well together. It's kind of like when you translate things into other languages, they don't have quite the same rhyming effect. You know, but you know, what, what they talk about here is, in this, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This was a creed that, as best they can tell, was around within a year after Jesus had, uh, had risen from the dead. And the reason they had creeds was because a lot, of the, a lot of the society was illiterate. They didn't read. So they would have little things like, you know, for you, you we have things like that. They call them jingles today. Now, wh- why do they come up with jingles today? You ever, you ever ask yourself that? Why do advertisers come up with jingles? To grab your attention, yeah. For you to remember. Like, you deserve a break today. Yeah, imagine. How do you know you deserve a break today? McDonald's told me so, you know. Or melts in your mouth, not, yeah, in your hands, Yeah. Now, why do they want you to know that? So somebody, somebody sitting around someday and your parents are going, no, you know, you can't have that. And you go, it's not going to melt. Honestly, it melts in your mouth, not in your hand. You know what I mean? You're coming up white. Well, they, you know, they give you little jingles. So you'll remember. you know, it's the same reason they did creeds. They did creeds back then so that people would remember very important things. And this creed was Jesus died and was buried. He rose again and was seen by Peter and then the twelve. And so you begin to look at this. You begin to watch, and you see the historical evidence on this is amazing. In fact, people don't even try to refute this. I mean, I, I have read 
over the last three or four weeks as I've been doing a lot of study on this. I mean, I've read like so many different scholars. Many of them were guys that are totally not Christians. I mean, this one guy that started uh, the Jesus uh, seminar and stuff like that, he's this guy and he, he writes to try to, you know, um, disprove all these things. But as he's writing, he's like, yeah, the timing of these writings, it, it all matches up. This is all, this is all true. And so, you know, you began to look at this. You began to find, okay, the historical evidence speaks to this like, like crazy. And if you had nothing else other than that, that would be huge. That would be huge. But there's more. The second part, the second reason is just eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. You see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. And here, as Paul's talking to them, he says, now you remember, they started off, he said, first there was Cephas. That's Peter, another name for Peter. You know, um, he says, first there was Cephas, then there was the 12. Then there was the 500. Then there was James. Then there was all the apostles. He says, and then there was me. And he throws himself right under that. He says, you know, he even, he even appeared to me. He said, I, I saw him as one kind of born out of season. You know, I mean, uh, you know, and he, he begins to talk the eyewitness accounts. Do you realize... I mean, if you're in a court, you could have one-fourth of the number of eyewitnesses he's talking about here and convict anybody in the world of something. Why? Because this is huge, the number of eyewitnesses that he talks about here. But that's not even the biggest one. Probably the biggest one is the third one, and that is changed lives. Changed lives. When Jesus died, I mean, as far as his disciples went as far as everyone else that followed him went it was game over and that's why you know why, why is that most people when they die what do they do stay dead yeah it's what they do you know it's dead how you doing dead you know been dead for now several days you know so uh, you know that's what you do you stay dead not true with jesus not true with jesus in fact three days later He's, he's really, I mean, these people weren't thinking that was going to happen. Nobody was expecting the resurrection. Nobody was thinking that at all. In fact, these people were thinking, you know, this has been our friend. This has been our leader. We have followed him for three years. I mean, they were disillusioned. They were sad. They were scared, spitless, because they began to wonder, hey, you know those guys that got him? What if they remember what we look like? Maybe we should get rid of our T-shirts. Okay, everybody that has that, you know, I'm a Jesus guy, let's, let's throw those away. You know, let's get rid of those. You know, they began to really worry about this. John, in one of his vulnerable moments as he's writing the Gospel of John, even points out how they felt. In John 20, 19 here, he says, When it was evening, notice they waited until night. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, why? For fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, I can guarantee you that was the last thing that was with them when Jesus did that. Uh, can you imagine that scene? I mean, you're standing there and you're all just up by the door and windows and stuff. And you have everything closed up and you're kind of peering through the little curtain rods and stuff. You're looking out there. And just as you're looking, everyone's real quiet because no one wants to make noise because they're liable to know we're in here and they'll come in here and haul us out. So you're all there and, you know, you're thinking, okay, and everybody's really talking. And all of a sudden, 
Somebody standing right there behind you, just as you're looking out, and they go, peace be with you, peace be with you. I mean, you know, you you about jump out of your skin, and then you realize it's a dead person talking to me. That does not comfort you. No, I mean, you look back, and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, and it says they start talking to him then, and he's, he's talking to them, and they're just like, whoa, blown away, amazed. And, and Jesus comes in, begins to talk to them. Peace be with you. You know, they're, yeah, anything but. Very, very worried at that point. You know, I mean, things, uh, things, things don't go well. But you look, and a couple of months later, things are very different. In fact, a couple of months later, what's gone on, Peter and John are walking into this temple and there's a guy that's there that's really um, uh, crippled and, and he, he's needing help. And, he's trying, and so Peter and them come to him and they say, you know, in the name of Jesus, you know, arise and walk. And the guy gets up and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, how did this happen? And so Peter goes, this is an opportunity. And so he begins to share with all these people about, you know, Jesus dying and rising from the dead and how they can actually have life in him. And it says about that time, there's this uproar and all of these guys begin to come in. So if you look in in verses four, one through three, it says this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Now, see, these are three groups that you, you know, you don't really want together. First of all, the priests are the same ones who were in the trial for Jesus. You know, the temple guards were part of the ones that helped carry out the sins. And then the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection at all. That's why they were sad, you see. But you see, they were over there, and so they didn't believe in it. I know, that was horrible. But they didn't believe in any of that. But it says, they come in, and it says, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Now you begin to think, the people who have just beaten and killed your friend a couple of months earlier. And he was the leader. Now, do you think you're scared at this point? I mean, you would think so, right? You would think these guys have got to be just mortified here. You know I mean? Good night. And yet, when they bring them in, they question them before the council. And they say, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing speaking about this guy? I mean, you, you intend to bring this guy's blood upon us? You think you're really going to do that? As they question him, and this is their reply. Hey, if this is about the guy who was healed, know this, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Doesn't sound very scared, does it? In fact, it not only, it, it not only didn't sound scared, it so confounded the people who thought they had all the power and thought they were going to really intimidate these guys that they didn't know what to do. So it says, what they did was they told him, all right, we're going to threaten you. And they were like, no, yes. Don't do this anymore or beatings shall begin. And they, they threaten them. And this is what Peter and John say. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking. See this last part? What we have seen 
and heard. This wasn't just wishful, I hope it's true, I hope it's true, I hope it's true, I hope it's true. No, 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 no. We cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. Their confidence wasn't in just, you know, an idea. Their confidence was in an event that took place. The resurrection of Jesus. They saw him die. They saw him dead. They saw him buried. They saw him alive. Total difference. Total difference. Peter and John, I mean, they go from being cowards to being these courageous guys. They go from, you know, like scattering all over the place, scared to death, to standing up to the very ones that killed Jesus and saying, now you decide who we ought to listen to. You or God. Everybody's kind of going, wow. James. I mean, can you imagine James? Can you imagine if you went home over break and your brother, you know, who never gets in trouble with mom and dad, uh, your, your brother, you go home and your brother said, you say, why is it you never get in trouble with mom and dad? And he goes, oh, I haven't told you. I'm actually God. And you go, uh-huh. Wow, you're going to be living at home a long time. You know what I mean? Whoa. Or in a home somewhere. You know what I mean? You're like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Now, James, James, who was such a doubter, I mean, you know, he becomes this devoted disciple of Jesus. The book of James that we have in the New Testament, that, that comes from him. You look at, you look at uh, Paul. Here's a guy who persecuted people. In fact, he went after him trying to kill people that were part of this because he thought it was so wrong. He becomes one who goes out to spread the gospel all over the world. The only way you can account for the changed lives of each one of these, along with hundreds of others, including many of you and myself to this day, the only way you can account for that, the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. Before the resurrection, no Christianity. After the resurrection, exponential. Everything began to change. So, how does that impact you? Well, if you're one of those followers who've been going along and you wonder, you know, um, is my faith, is it even defensible? What I would tell you is this. Um, you need to know your faith is not fragile. Okay? It's not one of those things that need to be, you know, a little stamp on it, fragile, handle with care. No. Your faith isn't fragile. In fact, the foundation of your faith is an event that is incontroversible. There is no way that it could be disproved. The foundation of your faith is sure. So, what I would say to you, you need to look into that. You need to get serious, and you need to actually begin to live that out. On the other hand, maybe you're someone who you've been coming around, and you've been kind of checking out things uh, about Christ, and you've kind of been checking out, you know, Christianity and trying to figure out, you know, is, is this believable? What should I do with this? You know, what I would tell you is this, you know, you have a choice to make. Because as you begin to look at the evidence, one of the things you're going to find is this. It's kind of like this Scottish preacher, um, John Duncan, said in this quote up here. 
Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. I don't even know what that word means. I mean, it means impossible. But I mean, it's like you can't get out of it. You know, it is inexorable. Why? Because he has to be one of those three things. C.S. Lewis came along a little bit later and he summed it up in three ways. He said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. But you have to decide. Because you can call him a lot of things, but one thing you cannot call him is just a good teacher. Because a good teacher would not claim to be God. And so, you know, either he's crazy, which no one through the centuries has been able to find any evidence there. Or he was really deceitful. There's less evidence for that. Or he was exactly who he said he was. So my word for you would simply be this. Check it out. Check it out. And uh, the foundation, what you're going to find, is true. I had a friend who uh, used to work in Nashville. And this past week, they took a building that has his name on it, and they imploded it. Now, if you don't know what that means was, they put all of these different um, explosives in really unique spots that all the engineers knew about and they release these explosives and they blow them up one after another and this whole building just kind of goes down to the ground in no time and you're just kind of like whoa that's amazing you know the thing if you wanted to implode all of Christianity you don't need lots of explosives you don't need a lot you need one one thing strategically placed to bring down the resurrection game over but here's what you find in 2000 years that's never been done in fact person after person after person after person after person has set out to disprove the resurrection and in the process became a follower of Jesus Christ so what I would encourage you know the faith you have it's got a firm foundation. It's not fragile. Very, very firm. It's been tried. It's been tested for centuries. Next week, we're going to look at a little bit at the Bible. Now, if the Bible is not the foundation of our faith, which a lot of people tend to look at and think, well, the Bible's the foundation of our faith. No, it's not the foundation of our faith. So if the Bible's not the foundation of our faith, then what role does it hold? We're going to look a bit at that next week. So we'll do that. Before we do, let me pray for us. Let me welcome the... Uh, ministry team back up and uh, or the ministry team no i hope not uh the worship team ministry team probably wouldn't sound as good as worship team so we'll uh welcome them back up and we'll uh take some more time to just sing back to god let's pray father thank you thank you that we uh we don't have to go to school and then wonder if um, our faith is strong enough to last or wonder if it can uh, withstand the attacks that seem to come from different fronts. Father, we know that we have a sure foundation in an event in history 
that took place, that shaped lives, that has shaped our world in a different way. In fact, Father, for many of us, it's reshaped our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we uh, think on those things, we would really think through what are the ramifications of that for my life and how do I need to begin to live that out in a practical way every single day. And I pray you really give us uh, not only the courage, but you give us the understanding in how to do that. And we pray those things in the name of Jesus.